On February 3rd, people will go to designated locations and get together. Registered Democratic voters across more than 1,600 precincts in Iowa and more than 90 satellite precincts outside the state. And I think three or four are actually even in foreign countries. There's one in France, I know, and, and Scotland. These voters will gather in high school gyms, school cafeterias, churches, and union halls. And the Democrats gather together and form groups and they physically organize themselves in rooms according to candidates that they support. There'll be a corner for Bernie Sanders, a zone for Elizabeth Warren, an area for Pete Buttigieg, you get the picture. Voters physically stand with their fellow supporters. They then count heads, and any group that has less than 15% of the total must disband. Those stranded voters then have three options. They can either join a group supporting a viable candidate. They can try to woo caucus goers away from other candidates to get theirs over that 15% mark. Or they can leave. Say goodnight. Go home. And then that second round is the basis upon which delegates from the caucus are awarded to each candidate. Then heads are counted again, the percentages are calculated, and each Democratic presidential candidate is allocated delegates. The Democratic Iowa caucuses can be a pretty wild process, often compared to a game of musical chairs. For candidates, though, this game has a lot riding on it, potentially the entire fate of their campaigns. Iowa is the first state in the country to vote in the presidential primary season every four years. And because it's the first time we hear directly from voters in each election cycle, the caucuses get a lot of attention. Folks, raise your hand if you're a first-time caucus participant. Here we go. And a lot of history has been made in this room, outside all the candidates all across the state in these final hours. Candidates spend tremendous amounts of money and invest in large-scale operations on the ground in hopes of earning those coveted votes of caucus-goers in the Hawkeye state. Sometimes candidates even move there. That's why this year's unprecedented conflict for some top Democratic contenders seems so significant. Several candidates polling highest in Iowa have been unable to physically be in the state very much the past few weeks. Senator Sanders, Warren, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Senator Michael Bennett have been back in Washington serving as jurors in the impeachment trial of President Trump. Uh, So it is disappointing to me uh, not to be in Iowa uh, talking to the people there. But But don't you think it's important business? Pierre? Well, of course it is, and I'm accepting my constitutional responsibility. One of the great things about having these early states is the voters get to know you, and I think they're going to understand uh, that I have a constitutional duty to be there. And if an impeachment trial is going on, I will be here. It is my responsibility. Having a presence in those final weeks in Iowa can be the key to wooing any remaining undecided voters. What's more, at least one candidate won't even appear on the ballot. Billionaire Michael Bloomberg is opting out of the first four primaries and caucuses, making his entry on Super Tuesday ballots. All of this brings me back to a fundamental question that's been bugging me as Iowa approaches. How important is this state to the final outcome of the primary? How might senators' scale-down presence in Iowa in the final weeks before the caucuses really affect the results? And how much does winning Iowa matter for who eventually wins the nomination and even the presidency? To answer that question, we set out to learn from the past. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And in this episode, what it takes to get there. 
I'm Allison Michaels. I feel like a, I feel like a four-year cicada where I am underground, and then every fall before the election, I get a lot of business. That's Carrie Covington. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Iowa. Carrie's research focuses on the presidency, especially governing and elections. And being in Iowa, you just sort of get force-fed the uh, Iowa caucuses, and people call and ask questions, and you learn more. And 30-some years later, this is where I am. In the days, months, even years leading up to a presidential election, everyone's first focus is Iowa, and for good reason. Before we get to the Iowa caucuses, all we have are polls, and polls, of course, are important, but the results of the Iowa caucus is the first determinant estimate of candidate support that we get. And what the Iowa caucuses do is initiate a process that is sometimes referred to as winnowing, where you're identifying the weak candidates. Candidates who do poorly in the Iowa caucuses tend not to recover. They tend to uh, drop out often before Super Tuesday. But for those who do win in Iowa, the path isn't necessarily a straight line to the nomination. You've got Lots of examples where the person who finishes in first place in Iowa uh, does not win the nomination. So what can the Iowa caucuses in previous election cycles teach us about how much this first vote matters? Carrie's right. There's lots of examples that help answer this question. We're going to look at three of them. Let's start with George H.W. Bush's presidential run in 1980. Reagan was the perceived frontrunner, but George H.W. Bush uh, narrowly won the caucuses. That 1980 run was the elder Bush's first run for the presidency. That year, he actually won the Iowa caucuses, but ultimately lost the nomination to Ronald Reagan. You have to look back at that time, not with today's eyes, but with those days' eyes. And that means nobody knew exactly how the nominating process would unfold, what the dynamics, what the politics, what the strategy was. Do you run early and maybe peak early, or do you run late and build momentum at the end? To understand this, you need a little bit of history. Versions of Iowa's caucus system have existed since the early days of its statehood. But the first Democratic Iowa caucuses as we recognize them today were only held in 1972. The first GOP caucuses were four years later in 1976. Before that, though, presidential nominations were made at conventions by delegates who were usually party insiders. After riots over the delegates' choice for a nominee in 1968, the Democrats decided to change their primary voting system to make it more inclusive to citizens. The decision was to spread Democratic primaries out over time. In Iowa in particular, the state decided to hold separate district and state conventions to ensure that their existing caucus system was representative of the people and not just party leadership. This longer process from district caucuses to state nomination meant that Iowa needed to get started early. Hence why it's first. So given the party's sweeping changes to the system in 1972, by the 1980 election, there weren't exactly very many examples for how to run a campaign in Iowa and beyond. Candidates hadn't quite figured out a winning strategy. A lot of candidates thought performing early and not doing well would hurt them, and so they didn't want to do that. But basically in 1980, Ronald Reagan, who had just missed being the nominee in 76, when he was seen as the clear frontrunner in the Republican Party in 1980. And he didn't want to risk himself in Iowa, so he didn't really campaign uh, as hard as he might have in Iowa. George H.W. Bush, on the other hand, 
basically pushed all his marbles, pushed all his cards in in Iowa and eked out a narrow victory. But Bush's 1980 Iowa victory was more like a fluke. He lost in New Hampshire, and then he lost again in South Carolina, and Reagan, you know, righted the ship and restored his position and won the nomination fairly handily. Bush never really had strong support in 1980. He just exploited a a weakness that, or an opening rather, that uh, Reagan created for him. And I think that's reflected in 1988's results. Bush took a different approach to his 88 campaign overall. And let me just, before taking a few questions, sum up where I think things stand in the quest for the presidency and tell you why I need your help at these Iowa caucuses. We're getting into the exciting period now. By that point, Bush had been vice president for eight years. Iowa's agricultural economy was struggling under President Reagan's administration. Plus, Bush's vice presidential obligations made it pretty difficult for him to spend as much time in Iowa as he had in 1980. This time around, he wasn't quite clicking with the Hawkeye voters. That year, Bush finished third in Iowa. But his 88 campaign was resilient. Bush had the organization. Bush had the endorsement of Ronald Reagan. And just as Reagan righted the ship in 1980. So too did uh, George H.W. Bush, and and he won the, the nomination fairly handily by the end. I accept your nomination for president. George H.W. Bush would go on to win the presidency that year. Both Reagan and Bush had, at some point, stumbled in Iowa. Yet with strong support and organization in the later states, neither loss cost these candidates their party's nomination. History shows, though, that the opposite can also be true. A win at the Iowa caucuses can boost a lesser-known candidate. It can give them just the momentum they need to propel a campaign to the nomination. Barack Obama in 2008 benefited from this perception of being a fresh-faced outsider rather than an establishment known quantity supported by the party like Hillary Clinton. In early January of 2008, Barack Obama, young senator from Illinois, was competing against a handful of candidates. But one of his toughest competitors in Iowa was then-Senator Hillary Clinton. To me, the crucial decision of 2008 that helped Obama win the nomination was Hillary Clinton putting the cart before the horse, as it were, for the nomination. Clinton wanted to have a strong national security position to fend off Republican attacks. But Americans in 2008, Kerry explained, were disillusioned by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many Democrats at the time who had voted for the post-9-11 authorization for the use of military force, a vote that ultimately led to the Iraq war, expressed regret over that vote. But Clinton, back in 2008, defended her vote in favor of the AUMF. She said that she made the right decision with the information she had at the time. I should note here that she since walked that defense back and in 2016 did call the vote a mistake. What she was doing was saying, I'm not weak on national security. I'm not going to let Republicans hit me with this. But what she didn't anticipate was that Barack Obama would hit her with that. And the Democrats in Iowa were very unhappy with the war in Iraq. And so Clinton opened the door for Obama with the vote on the war and her position on it to allow him to give him breathing room, let him appeal to voters, gave them a reason to support him. And given his sort of progressive image, he's an African-American, that's going to be a historic event should he win the nomination. He was able to generate support and, and finish first. 
And it became a, a leaping off point, a jumping off point for Obama going into the rest of the race. For instance, his win in South Carolina could no longer simply be characterized as, oh, well, he got the black vote, as Bill Clinton tried to do. It was clear that it was part of a broader expression of of public support for him. It wasn't simply that he was the African-American candidate. It was he was the candidate of change. He was the candidate of progress. Hillary Clinton was the candidate of the establishment. And, and Democrats were looking for something new at that time. That energy and momentum set in motion by Obama's historic win in Iowa led the senator from Illinois to the nomination and eventually the presidency. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer. 2016 was an unprecedented election year in so many ways. It was an election that, of course, included Donald Trump, the opponent to whomever the Democratic nominee turns out to be in 2020. So when I was talking to Kerry, I didn't want to leave 2016 off our list of caucuses. In the lead up to that year's primary season, a lot of pollsters and pundits weren't quite sure what to make of then-candidate Trump. I remember serving on a number of uh, discussion panels in the fall of 2015 leading up to the Iowa caucuses, and, and nobody even took Donald Trump's candidacy seriously in terms of going all the way. In the 2016 Republican caucuses, about a dozen candidates, a huge field, competed to win over the voters of Iowa. Ultimately, Trump placed second behind Senator Ted Cruz and ahead of Senator Marco Rubio. The percentage of the vote that Trump got in 2016 in Iowa was lower than his approval ratings in the Iowa polls that were done just before the Iowa caucuses. And, and, and that was a reflection of the fact that Trump basically had no organization in Iowa. Iowa is a ground game state. It's a state where you have to have people knocking on doors, getting their friends to come out and vote on a cold winter night. It's hard to do. And Trump was not prepared for that. He didn't succeed at that. He uh, underperformed. We finished second. And I want to tell you something. I'm just honored. I'm really honored. And I want to congratulate Ted, and I want to congratulate all of the incredible candidates, including Mike Huckabee, who's become a really good friend of mine. So congratulations to everybody. Congratulations. But to win the nomination, Trump didn't need to win Iowa. And he didn't even need overwhelmingly high percentages of votes going forward either. And that's because of how the Republicans' primary system works. Republicans use a winner-take-all system in most of their states. And so if you can finish ahead of everybody else in each of the contests, you win 100% of the delegates. And that's basically what Trump was doing. He was finishing with 30 35% of the vote. And with a field of other candidates arrayed against him, nobody could compete. And so he was winning huge amounts of delegates. He was overperforming in delegate victory compared to voter support by dramatic, dramatic percentages. 
In every voting state before April of 2016, Trump earned less than 50 percent of the vote. But because of that winner-take-all or winner-take-more approach in awarding delegates, Trump racked up high delegate totals fairly early. Iowa was first, sure, but the accumulation of delegates from the states voting shortly after Iowa is what really firmed up Trump's leader-of-the-pack status. What Iowa did for the Republicans and for Trump was to show that even without a traditional political organization, a traditional political base, political money, he connected with voters in a way that the other candidates could not. And he used that along with the rules for delegate allocation to secure the nomination. It seems then the vote in Iowa gives campaigns their first tangible insight into what's working, what's not, and whether their candidate can even stand a chance. Iowa is not going to allow us to pick between, say, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. That will be done by events subsequent to the Iowa caucuses. But what the Iowa caucuses will do is tell us, for instance, is Amy Klobuchar uh, still in the race? Amy Klobuchar has to reach that 15% threshold in the pre- in the precinct caucuses. If she polls at 10 and 12% throughout the state, she'll end up with very little support in terms of delegate counts. But on the other hand, if she breaks through and as the fourth candidate uh, overperforms, then she will have a way forward going forward. Iowa eliminates candidates from the race. And I think that's what we'll see, that who, who gets out after Iowa. History clearly has a lot to teach us about what the Iowa caucuses can mean for the rest of a presidential race. History, though, is less reliable when we consider just how different the situation in Iowa is this year. I love Iowa. It's my favorite early state. People are great. Perhaps there's no better way to find answers about Iowa than by talking to someone, well, in Iowa. I called The Post's campaign reporter, Holly Bailey, on Wednesday. She's been living in Iowa, traveling all around the state for the past several weeks. There's no electorate in the country that sort of cares more and takes very, very seriously the responsibility of being the first state to vote. By early next week, we'll have votes collected in Iowa. But beyond winners and losers, more than outcomes for specific candidates, I wanted to know what else might we learn out of the caucuses this time around? It helps sort of zone in on on what a successful message is. And for instance, this year, it will be, do people care about some of the issues that we've been hearing debates about, Medicare for all, and the tug of war between the ideological stuff in the party? Is the party going more towards the left? Is it going more towards the middle? There's been a, a struggle for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party leading up to Iowa. And so the results here, I think the campaigns are hoping for some clarity. Do they want to elect someone that can win back people who voted for President Trump? Or are they just giving up on that and going for the more progressive side where it can pump up other folks around the country and and win that way? And are they just abandoning the idea of winning over Republicans? And that decision process is more complicated for Iowans this year because many of the leading candidates are not, in fact, spending too much time in Iowa right now because they are stuck in Washington at Trump's 
impeachment trial. Can you describe what it's been like to be in Iowa this past month without some of these key candidates there? Well, the past month has actually been very busy. It's just been the last couple of weeks that it's Iowa has turned into kind of this ghost state in some ways. It's not like things aren't happening. And you can, if you turn on the television, every single ad is a campaign ad. Voters here are being overwhelmed. And so in some ways, it's not as if it feels like the campaign has stopped. It's just that you're not seeing the kind of litany of events that you would normally see. What's kind of funny is that, you know, most media organizations, including the Washington Post, you know, you have like sort of a game plan for how to cover the final week before the Iowa caucus. Everybody sort of flies into town the Monday before, you know, you have a lot of people here, you fan out across the state and you're and you're chasing candidates. And in this instance, half the candidates are gone. And so a lot of people are just kind of struggling to figure out what to do. I was at an event with Bailey Warren, who is Elizabeth Warren's golden retriever. And I must say, Bruce Mann, her husband was there, as was her adult son, Alex Warren. But the whole point of this was people wanted to see Elizabeth Warren's dog. And Elizabeth Warren's dog is traveling across the state today you know, standing in for his mom and doing the selfie lines and, you know, people turned out and it was very humorous, but that's sort of, but there was a a large contingent of reporters here to watch this unusual scene. And, you know, Warren has also had Julian Castro, the former San Antonio mayor, who was also a candidate in this race until very recently. A lot of reporters are turning out to see him. So all these surrogates are kind of standing in for folks and they're getting big crowds and it's an unusual week. I would say. (laughs) Are voters vocalizing the sense of absence of the candidates? Are they on board with this surrogate approach or or are they really feeling the the absence of these people? I think that when you talk to voters, they're very, very understanding about the fact that the impeachment trial is going on and you hear a lot about it at the rallies. And in fact, because most of the candidates get up on stage and they acknowledge that it's going to happen. I mean, A.B. Klobuchar, this impeachment trial seems to be coming at a time that is very inconvenient for her. She's been sort of gaining, you know, momentum here in Iowa. A lot of voters like her. There's some sort of signs in the polls that she's something's going on with her. She's finally gotten enough money to be on air and open up offices. And then suddenly she's absent. And so the last week we've seen her daughter out campaigning for her, her husband. They've been, her supporters have been throwing Minnesota hot dish events where they bring their casseroles and talk about Amy Klobuchar. And so I think voters, and she gets, Klobuchar gets up on stage often, or at least the recent events, and she gets up and says, this is not a good time for me, but it is my duty to be in Washington for this important event. And I think most people are are very understanding about that. So are you getting the, the vibe that some voters are kind of paralyzed by choice with this huge field? Yeah. And I've never seen voters so emotional. I've been out at some events with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, and with Joe Biden and Buttigieg. And voters there are just, I, I've, I've been struck by how emotional they become and just that, that, that being feeling paralyzed about making the wrong decision. Because a lot of them just say, I just want somebody that can be President Trump. I can't. I can't go on feeling like this right now with the, with the state of the country. And I was talking to a woman at a Bernie Sanders rally who just burst into tears because she's so stressed out by trying to decide. I've never seen that on the campaign trail before in any other campaign. And I've never especially seen this many undecided voters this late in the campaign. I mean, we're less than a week out. And there have been polls out in recent days that show as many as 40 percent 
of people say that they are still, you know, undecided or willing to change their mind and can be convinced to support someone that unlike the person that they've, you know, sort of settled on. It's it's just really it's it's hard to communicate how fluid it is. I feel like no one really knows what's going to happen next week. As unusual as this caucus is because of the missing senators, there's even more unusual pieces in the caucuses this year, a lot of them in the rules and processes. One of the the differences in the rules is that if your candidate hits 15% viability in that first round of caucusing, you're locked into that candidate. You can't move around. You can't change to another candidate in round two. Can you explain that? You know, most people probably do remember a little bit of the chaos that broke out in the 2016 campaign where some of these caucuses came down to the literally flipping a coin to decide who won them. And so the Iowa Democratic Party has has put in a lot of things to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And all the campaigns have been really energetic and engaged and on it about training their supporters to to be on on the math side of this. They don't want to miss viability just by missing one person, for example. A lot of people in the past would just say they, they were undecided at first, and they would see how the room shook out before deciding who they would go to ultimately. A lot of the campaigns are really worried about this because if say there's enough people that are say they're undecided that could actually if they reach 15% viability that will just be their ultimate choice and so that hasn't really happened since Jimmy Carter ran here in the 1970s when he actually he he was the candidate that sort of won the caucus but he actually came in second to undecided so a lot of the campaigns are really telling people do not do that because a lot of people kind of game it out. Sometimes they'll caucus, they'll do undecided and then, you know, decide where they're going. But really this year, the campaigns are like, if you like someone, go to their corner, you know, because there's a chance that you don't want to lock in being undecided because then you're stuck with it. So there's a lot of training going on, a lot of warnings going out about about that sort of thing. And what else is, is different in the rules this year? There's two things also that's changed about how they're running the caucuses this year. The winner is determined by delegates, but they're also going to be releasing a overall vote total. And there's some anticipation that there's one candidate that could win the delegate count and therefore claim victory in Iowa. And then there's going to be somebody else that possibly wins more votes. A lot of people are really looking upon that decision with dread, um, just saying, you know, that it's it's going to cause potential chaos and anger um, among people who will not necessarily say, you know, go with the winner. Um, but then there's also just the idea that the results could reflect what the polls have been, which is just four people who have been basically almost tied for months and months and months, and that whoever wins the caucuses could maybe win by 1%. It could be just a result of, you know, four people at the top, and everybody's going to have a ticket out of here in some ways. Speaking of the four people at the top, I just want to address another big difference in this year's primary race. And it's the fact that a potentially major candidate with a lot of his own money to spend isn't on the ballot here at the caucuses, and in fact, not until Super Tuesday. And that's, of course, billionaire Michael Bloomberg. How does Bloomberg coming in late with tons of money change Iowa's significance in the race in these early 
real estate significance? Well, I think it's it's still to be seen. Yeah, Michael Bloomberg entered very late. He's not competing here or in New Hampshire or South Carolina. He's focusing on the Super Tuesday states. What's happening is that you're having this race among the competitors here. The people that have been leading in the polls here have been Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg. And so they're going to go through the early states and then come against Michael Bloomberg, who has been spending you know, tons and tons and tons of his own money and setting up, you know, a pretty unprecedented operation in these states. And we're going to see if if that makes a key difference. I mean, you know, there's a lot of punditry on how this could all play. Could Bloomberg step in if Biden falters? Could he be the person that sort of that moderates turn to? I mean, there's lots of speculation, but the truth is we just don't really know yet. Okay, before I let you go, I just want to ask you about the Republican caucuses in Iowa this Mm -hmm. year. Do voters turn out for that even when Trump doesn't have any serious Republican opponents? How does that work? Yeah, they do. The Republicans are having a caucus and they're going to have surrogates out. Donald Trump is going to be here um, in the next couple of days here um, in Iowa. And already his surrogates have been here a few weeks ago. His his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, who is working for the campaign, came through here on a bus tour to sort of remind people that while there's this focus on the Democratic race, Trump is raising money and they're getting their organization ready to go for his reelection. And so what's been really interesting about Iowa, I mean, there's just, you know, when you turn on the television, it's all Democratic ads and it's just all the news about is, the, is about the Democratic primary. But you drive across Iowa, where Iowa had 31 counties in the state flip from President Obama to Trump, the most of anywhere in the country. And so when you drive around, you see people who have Trump flags flying outside their houses. And it's just sort of this reminder of what comes next. And that's really been interesting because it influences sort of Democrats are already kind of trying to pave the way here for what happens after the caucus is over. You know, months ago, they were holding these sort of social hours for staffers who work for candidates here, Democratic candidates, just to remind people to be friendly and that they all should unite and work for whoever ultimately the nominee is because Donald Trump already has a lot of money and a lot of organization, especially here in Iowa. Given all of these sort of unique pieces of Iowa this year, are the 2020 caucuses likely to be very predictive of the rest of the race, or are they sort of operating in their own special way right now? It just depends on who turns out. I mean, Democrats are predicting a record turnout. We'll see if that happens. Back in 2008, when President Obama won the caucuses and basically won Iowa, and and that basically set him up as the nomination race went longer, but that was basically the beginning of his campaign and sort of gave him this like surge of energy. Back then, there was a record turnout. And and Democrats here are predicting this year could be a bigger turnout than that because there's just a lot of enthusiasm among the Democratic side. A lot of new voters, particularly women who have been energized to get involved because of the Trump presidency. And so I think we're going to see what all of that looks like. And I think while maybe the results are maybe going to be jumbled and fluid and may not, we're not going to have some clear winner. And there's a possibility of seeing one, another candidate win New Hampshire and yet another candidate win South Carolina. And this could go on forever. I think we're going to get the early clues 
of what the Democratic coalition looks like. Are people truly energized? Are we seeing new voters? What kind of enthusiasm is there? I was a small place, but it's always been a good predictor for that kind of thing. And so that's some of the things beyond a winner that we're going to get some clues about. All right, Holly, thank you so much for your time. Please stay warm there. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. This has been a special campaign episode of Can He Do That? If you liked it, let us know. And keep listening wherever you get your podcasts. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the unwavering Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.